engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 203. And today on the show, we're joined by Hale Blood of Northern Maine to discuss hunting and tracking big mature bucks in big woods settings. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we are talking big woods deer hunting. And we're joined by one of the most well-known experts on this topic on hunting the big woods of the Northeast, Mr. Hale Blood. And uh, my wife thought that was a pretty apt name, by the way. <laughs> she yeah. heard that. She's like, well, of course that guy hunts. <laughs> yeah, it's badass. It's a badass uh, Yeah. Name. It is, it is. And uh, Hale, in addition to having a great name, he is the author of Hunting Big Woods Bucks Volume 1 and 2 and Tracking Whitetail Bucks. He is the president of the educational company and website Big Woods Bucks. He's a seminar speaker, a registered master guide in the state of Maine. And based off the many emails I've gotten over the years requesting him as a guest, he is a very well-respected and revered hunter who I think is going to have a lot to offer when it comes to, you know, not just helping people that hunt in the same places he hunts, like up in the Northeast, but, I, you know, after, you know, hearing more about him, and actually I have already recorded the interview with him, so I know what he does talk about, and um, he just has a lot of stuff that was even interesting and applicable to me in what I do here in Michigan, and I think even like you, Dan, hearing this kind of stuff, I think there's stuff we can learn from his attention to detail, his attention to tracks, um, a lot of stuff like that that I think can be applied anywhere. So I'm excited for people to hear this one. Um, I found it really interesting. And um, in last week's podcast, um, I talked about a trip I'm taking up to the Boundary Waters of Minnesota. And I think a lot of the stuff that Hale talked about in this one, I can apply to that kind of hunt too. So just a lot of cool stuff. I think it's, it's unique compared to a lot of our conversations. Um, but before we get to that, we do need to have our pregame show because, Dan, you were able to uh, carve out some time in between family emergencies and all sorts of crazy stuff to, to at least get, let us catch up a little bit. So how the heck are you, man? I tell you what, like this year, as everybody hears on the news, is like, 
the year of the flu, right? Everybody's got the flu. Well, it's not necessarily the, the serious flu that's gone through our house, but with three kids, just it's a numbers game, right? Someone's going to be sick uh, throughout the winter time, And the last two weeks, and part of the reasons why I couldn't be on the podcast and um, – which really pisses me off because I like, you know, I like being the co-host, but you know, today I had to go into the doctor again and get my youngest uh, breathing treatment because he's, he's, he's got so much congestion in his lungs and uh, now he's on antibiotics and the older, my oldest one, she's uh, on medicine too, because she's, uh, you know, got some kind of sickness going on and it's just been kind of rotating through our house the past couple of weeks with my wife and my kids and myself and, and uh, I'm just kind of ready for summer to get here so mm-hmm. so we can get rid of all this shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. I hear you 100%. I, I, I've had some serious cabin fever, too. And I got to tell you, you worried me a few minutes ago before we started recording when you told me that your son had a brontosaurus. I'm like, <laughs> he has a dinosaur? <laughs> and then you realized that you meant bronchitis. Right. That's right. But, I, like, like <laughs> you should see how many simple mistakes I'm making these days. Because I am not getting the sleep that I need, I think Just like full blown dead life. Brain oh, now. dude! Like, I, it sucks because my boss came up to me like three different times in the past two days, and he's like, "Hey, Dan, can you quick change this on the report?" And I look, and I got all these numbers, and then I have a random word in with all these numbers, which is throwing the entire <laughs> thing off. And I'm just like, oh shit, this makes me look bad. But I think is that is the is the random word that's always in there, deer or bucks or something like that. <laughs> I think these days it's probably sleep. <laughs> yeah, I can relate. I hear you. I'm 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 learning. Yep, yep. So other, but you uh, not all's bad, right? Though no, you, man. you've had some good stuff happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I got. Uh, can you go ahead? Can I say even before you tell me? I just got to tell you that. When I saw what happened to you, I was like writhing in jealousy. I was, <laughs> I was like, I hate him so much. You know, you, we, we've talked about this before, but you know how when you flip through Instagram and you see like, oh, this guy shot a giant. It, there's a, mm-hmm. there's, you know, m- a majority of it is congratulations to that person for shooting a big buck. But then there's that little sliver that just kind of s- the thought sneaks in. That's just like that bastard. Like uh-huh. I, hate, you know, like I hate him. I hate that yeah. guy. And uh, um, it's like I'm 95 percent happy for it. Right, exactly. <laughs> but dude, I had one of those walks where you just you just run into sheds, man, and it was awesome. Walk us through it because that was pretty unbelievable. Right. So for the first thing is the stars kind of all aligned, right? And the goal was to just quick go out, take a tree stand down, and get back and get home. But um, my daughter had a birthday party with a friend, so my daughter took or my wife took my daughter and the baby to this birthday party, and my son stayed home with grandma because she didn't have to work. So I had time where if I wanted to, I could go do something without having any kids with me. So I went real fast, took down this tree stand, found a shed while I was taking down my tree stand. Uh, then I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go walk this field. It's a real easy walk. It's a place you've walked actually before. And um, I think it, on this field, I found a shed and Corey Fall found a shed. Uh, this is the the big crop field the, with yep, grassy strips in it? Yep, yep. The, the buffer strips in it. And... I'm like, you know what? If there's going to be sheds here 
or you know anywhere that's a real easy walk that I can cruise real fast and not take up an you know a, a ton of time I'm going to walk this field so I walk into it and the first shed of the day that I find is laying right on a fence in a in a little tuft of grass that looks like you know these deer are um, going and eating and then they'll have their like their night bed you know what I mean where they'll they'll basically yeah. just sit and chew uh, all the food that they ate right um, so that was the biggest shed, 65 and 5 eighths inches, what I measured it out at. Um, and that was a four point side, yeah, wasn't it? Four point side. So Ugh. give or take. And I gave him, I gave him a 17 inch inside spread, which I think it's pro- probably, I'm being conservative. So it's like a 147 inch eight pointer, which is, I got, that is yeah, insane. I got pictures of him two years in a row. Um, and he's definitely on the, he's a hitless buck. And, uh, so, you know, that walk then turned into me kind of slowing down and really scraping the area really good. And uh, in the first buffer strip, I found three sheds. And in the next buffer strip, I found another three sheds. Um, and then <laughs> I'm trying to think. I found I found eight sheds in that field. Uh, one, one of them was a match set. And then... Um, dude it just, just kind of happened you know what i mean and it, every one of them was in the grass and i was just kind of cruising looking for the the cherry pick but i i swear this weekend um if i don't go to the iowa deer classic i think i'm going to go shed hunting again with my wife and we're going to walk that cornfield in the rows and just kind of real slow methodically go through it to, because i i have a feeling i missed a lot in that that are just kind of well, sitting out in that field yeah, if there's that many just in the buffer strips right right along there. Then wasn't it almost all right sides? Yeah, and that's the funny thing. So of the nine sheds I found, and by the way, uh, I dropped a shed walking back to the truck that I didn't notice because I I had I didn't have a backpack because I was like hey, this is just going to be a quick walk. I found all these sheds, so I had to carry them all by hand, and I think I dropped one of the smaller ones. So it's still oh, man. it's still out there somewhere. Um, <laughs> That made, so do you count that as twice? So is that two sheds if you found it and then you find it again? <laughs> Hopefully my wife finds it. There you go. So, there you go. So, but yeah, man, I mean, um, and that was only half the field too. I didn't get wow. to the, the timber line uh, because I, uh, time ex- I slowed way down, time expired, the grass was a little taller, I was going back and forth in all these trails uh, just trying to see what else was there. I was, you know, looking for beds and um, – but I found the food source that they've they've been hitting the past couple of weeks, and I don't know. It just made me excited to get out and do more shed hunting. That's awesome, man! Shed hunting when you hit the jackpot like that—that seems oh, pretty incredible. Yep. I've never had a, I've never had a day like that. That just sounds nuts. And that's two. Let's see. That's a tie. I found nine sheds. That's a tie for the most. I think the most sheds I found in a day. Yeah. And that was only that's a heck of a day. And that's crazy because that was only a two like if you if you add in the the first shed I found when I was walking through the timber and you know cuz I took the like a back way in to get my tree stand down um just so I was kind of looking for sheds the entire time. Uh if you if you don't count that, I only walked for 2 hours and found 9 sheds. So Jeez. that's pretty good. And I've had days where I've walked 10 hours and found zero sheds. Yeah. Well, you found that all happened to you, what, was that Sunday? Sunday, yep, Sunday. Yeah. So 
during the week prior to that, I think I spent like two evenings or afternoons. Maybe I put in like four or five hours. Well, maybe more than that. Maybe we'll say four to six hours during the week. And then Friday afternoon and a good chunk of Saturday and a good chunk of Sunday, I put probably put in another 15 hours. So we'll say maybe 20 hours of shed hunting last week right. in Michigan, and I found zero. Yeah. And so... <laughs> yeah. Then I saw you had your two hour nine shed day and I said to myself, Man, yeah, why are you shed hunting in Michigan? <laughs> so then guess what I did? You went to Ohio. I went to Ohio. Can I tell can I tell you about that? I want you to tell me about it. <laughs> so I got my buddy Furter and we went on down to Ohio uh yesterday. And um long story short on that, uh walked our property Josh found a nice shed um, in a spot where I've always thought we would find sheds, but we never have. Uh, but pulled a nice, I think it's probably a three-year-old buck, young, youngish buck, um, but great potential. He had a busted G2, but his G3 is like 10 inches long. Wow. Um, so he, he's definitely a deer that'll look that'll, uh, that'll grow into something special probably by next year. So that was cool. Um, and then there's another property we have shed hunting permission on. So we went there and... Um, Stop by the landowner's house to say hi. We always like to chat. And the landowner says, I got something for you, Mark. Oh, boy. And picks up off of the lawnmower a gigantic shed, hands it to me, and I just about flipped out. <laughs> I think it is, I'm holding it right now. I haven't measured it yet, but it is the most massive shed that I have now in my collection. Right, right. Um, and could be like a 70-inch side. I mean, just super-duper mass. And as I was looking at it, I'm like, I know this buck. This is a buck that we have referred to as Blades. Okay. I saw him as a 3-year-old. Further saw him the next year as a 4-year-old. We've had... We didn't see him at all last year as a five-year-old, but we've had pictures of him for three years straight now. And now I have his shed in my hand. So that was amazing. So he's going to be a six-year-old. He's going to be a six-year-old this year, yep. So when you saw him, um, how far away was he from you when you saw him? Uh, well, this was when I when I saw him was as a three-year-old. Okay. Um, and I, I watched him from maybe 100 yards away. Gotcha. That's crazy. Yeah. But now we say, okay, we're going to go for our walk. So we go start walking, and we're walking this fence row. And within three to five minutes of leaving the landowner's house, I look on the edge of the field in the fence row, and, oh, there's a shed. And I go running over and grab it, and it is the match side to Blades. Wow. And that's this this year's shed, right? Yeah, this is this year's shed. Um, And that shed, again, I mean, they're, they're just amazing this the one side that was given to me is a five point side just a clean really heavy five point side the side i picked up is a five point side plus a really big sticker point coming off the base of the brow tine that's maybe four inches long yeah um so technically i guess an 11 pointer i would i would probably put him at maybe a 160 something inch buck wow five-year-old last year um so that was incredible that was the biggest shed i've ever found that was bigger than the mark Kenyon shed i found with you awesome um so yeah dude found my biggest shed ever and was given the match side two minutes or five minutes before that so that was pretty that was pretty awesome so 
I haven't found many sheds, but uh, the sheds I have found have been like really big, really cool, uh, special sheds. Right. So I'm a happy shed hunter so far. I cannot complain anymore. And it looks like our friend Furter. Man, that should be like a Netflix series. Our friend Furter. Our friend Furter. <laughs> we, you know, I was t- I was joking with him uh, about this yesterday. I'm like, dude, you you, sh- you can't complain about the fact that everyone refers to you as Furter now because, you, as you know, he works for the QDMA. Right. So he gets lots of emails from people, like official work emails, asking, you know, talking about different events or different things like this. And people are emailing him and, and referring to him as Furter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, man, I hope he doesn't flip out mentally and kill you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm telling he should be thankful because, like, he is the only man in the hunting industry now, the only person in the hunting industry who goes by one single name. Like, he's like the Kobe He's the Kobe of the hunting world right. now. He's just he, he's not he's not a he's not a public figure. He's an icon. That's right. He's just furter. That's right. So I, I smell a T-shirt coming. Oh, that would be good. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. So yeah, man, it was a lot of fun. We had a good day. And he found him. sheds though too, right? Yeah, I mean, he found that good one, that three-year-old I told you about, yep. and then he found another small one that actually I think might be actually the it's it's a busted off piece of a nailer it's not a shed on its own i think it's the end of a main beam that must have been from a pretty good buck too so um yeah dude it was a good day and um i'm excited to keep walking i'm back in michigan now gonna do some more walking probably this weekend and off to iowa next weekend right right chance there's a chance i might be able to join you for that too yeah dude work on that schedule yeah yeah it's gonna take some work it's gonna take like a date night i think and that kind of, you know, like maybe like two or three back rubs. And then these days that shit really doesn't pay off anyway, because then no, no matter what I do, my wife is still at home with three kids. Yeah. But I, I, here's, here's something funny. So I, I texted, uh, our other good friend, Ross Hossman today. Oh, Ross yep, Hossman. And I said, dude, is your wife going to come, uh, shed hunting? Because, you know, like. I love my wife to death, right? But if your wife's like, can I come? And it's like last year, if my wife came, I'm pretty sure there would have been a lawsuit that would have came out of that, <laughs> That you know, those, those well, conversations. After, <laughs> after she saw what Peter did to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so, so I'm like, hey, dude, is your wife going to come with us? Because my wife kind of wants to come too. And he's like, well, I don't know yet. So. I don't know. There, there may be there may be some females joining us. Uh, maybe. All right. Well, hey, yeah. it probably wouldn't be a bad idea for us to act like upstanding citizens for once, right? Right. But I think there is there's something positive about men scraping the bottom of the barrel every once in a while just to get it out of their system. That there's something to be said about that too. Right. Right. So. And I feel like you've. You've taken that to the extreme for many years. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. So, yeah, I, I, and I'm just like you, man. I am ready to get out and do some more shed hunting. There's something about at the end of the day, your legs and your back are sore, and it just feels good. Yeah, it's a good feeling. And then it's an especially good feeling if you can sit back in the couch afterwards and hold in your hand a piece of – right piece of bone and uh, spin it around and touch it and look at it and i don't know i know you're just like me it's just something special to yep. hold that and look at it and think about it and i was the cool. first human being to ever touch that antler which is i yeah, find i find it awesome yeah it's, it's wild i mean when you think about that 
was a piece of this like living animal right. and maybe it's a deer you hunted a deer you've seen before or encountered and to now like hold some piece of that that's i don't know i i i get a kick out of it I, so one question i know and i know we're on time but have you ever killed a deer that you have found sheds to yes yes okay yep um six shooter the buck i killed in michigan in 2013 yeah i have one of his antlers yep um that might be the only one though yeah until until holyfield this year right for as many sheds as I've found and as, you know, the deer that I've killed, I have yet, I'm, I'm looking back, and I have yet to kill a deer that I have found a shed to. I think it's pretty hard to do, except in those situations where people have, like, these really big managed properties. Right, right. But by permission, small properties are, are kind of situations in most cases. It, it's a tough sell. It's, I mean, it's tough to pull off. Right. But maybe... Maybe the tide's attorney. Maybe you're going to kill this mega eight pointer this year. Man, who knows? I, I'd love to. He's a he's a good he's a good buck. He's almost a nine. He's got a little cl- crab claw. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, here's my advice for you. Okay. To kill this big this big eight pointer, um, stick around for the rest of this podcast. Right. Since I know you you couldn't be here in the interview, but stick around for this one. Hear what Hal has to say about tracks and how he can tell how fresh tracks are and how he can tell how big a buck is by a track and by his stance and his gait. Um, and then apply that to this year in Iowa when you're looking at like tracks in the mud and that might help you better identify where this big burly buck is hanging out or walking. And I feel like this tracks are something that I'm getting more and more interested in. It's kind of overlooked a lot of times today. We focus so much on trail cameras and all that kind of stuff. But I think that there's something to be said about paying attention to what's actually on the ground. So, um, we cover some of that stuff today. It's pretty interesting. I'm ready. All right. Well, then uh, let's uh, take a break for our Sitka Gear story of the day, and then uh, we'll get right to Hell Blood. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Seth Healy, who tells us about checking trail cameras with his son. Well, it was uh, about the beginning of October. In the summertime, I got my little boy out with me uh, checking cameras, you know, velvet bucks. And uh, I started hunting some and wasn't much going on, and the weather was started to cool off. And, um, I thought, well, now would be a good time to get him out with me and kind of get him in the woods a little bit and, uh, check some more cameras. So we go out, I, the previous card pulls hadn't been too good. It was getting pretty slow. You know, the October lull was starting to hit. And so we go out and go to my favorite area of our family farm and, uh, go to check a couple cameras. And I let him, you know, I open and open the cameras up for him and let him pull the cards out and put new cards in and he was just I mean super excited to be out there and it was for a moment for me that you know I I had never got to do that with my dad and for me to be able to share just getting him out there and doing something that I love was super special for me um I don't even I can't even describe how to be whenever I actually get to take him hunting with me um you know because he's only three it was just I don't know it was even though we didn't kill anything or you know, anything like that, it was still a special moment to get my kid out there with me and and uh, let him enjoy everything that I enjoy about the outdoors. On Seth's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's Fanatic hoodie. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. All right, with me now on the line is Hale Blood. Thanks for joining us, Hale. 
Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm uh I'm excited to excited to have this chat. I've been following some of your your articles and different things you've posted over the years, um, kind of from a distance, and kind of always been aware of of some of the things you've been doing, and I've heard a lot about you and some other folks up in in your neck of the woods, as far as how you guys hunt. But we, I haven't done a good job of getting anyone on the Wired Hunt podcast to talk about this stuff, to talk about the big woods, to talk about tracking deer. Um, so you are filling a big gap for us, Hale. So, so thank you for doing that. And before we get too far into that stuff, I'd like to hear from you first a little bit about yourself. What's your story, Hale? How, how'd you get into all this and how'd you get to where you're at now? I think I got a crazy story. So I, I started uh, deer hunting when I was 10 years old, which is when you can start in Maine, you got to be 10 to hunt. Well, now they change it, but and my father was a, my father deer hunted. He wasn't a big deer hunter as far as, you know, like an expert or anything, but he liked to go and every, every once in a while he'd shoot a deer, you know. And I grew up in the southern part of Maine and, and there wasn't, there weren't a lot of deer back then in southern Maine. The, the northern forest was, was where the deer were the most heavily populated because southern Maine was, reverted farm country it was reverting when they let the farms go by and they just hadn't populated in i guess but it was a back then i remember back in the i started hunting in the late 60s and and uh you know it was a big deal if you shot a deer and you could shoot either sex back then you know as anything goes and you know it was a big deal a big saying was always you know to you get your deer because it was a big deal to get one so anyway, that's where I started, but I actually shot my first one when I was 12, and I shot when I was 13, and I skipped a couple of years because I really didn't get to go that much anyways, but then when I was 16, my my relatives invited me to come down to their their hunting lodge, which is an old farmhouse, and it was, it was more to the northeast of us, still kind of near the coast, but I, I got to go up there and spend a week. And uh, that was a big deal for me because I would go on Saturday or Thanksgiving or something before then. But And there was quite a few more deer up there. You know, it was common to see some deer every day up, up there. So I started shooting some deer up there, and then I went in the Marine Corps. As soon as I turned 18, I got out of high school. I went in the Marine Corps for a stint. And I deer hunted down in North Carolina where I was stationed. And... Uh, Shot a bunch of deer down there. The limit was four a year, I think, down there. But I was always crazy about it. And, and I was crazy about tracking, even though I didn't know it that much then, because in southern Maine, we didn't have much for snow during deer season. But I used to, in the wintertime, me and a couple buddies, we'd track rabbits around. We have snowshoe hares there, and we'd track them to ourselves. But And then when I got out of the Marine Corps, I had to get a job. I wanted to be a game warden, but they weren't taking applications, so... I just got a job in a grocery warehouse, and not to bore you with all this, that only lasted a couple of years, but the only vacation pick I could get was up north, and the uh, season opened a week early, so I got that pick, and I talked my father into going. That was 1980. Me and my father, we had this little pop-up camper we borrowed, and we headed to the North Main Woods to an area. It's where I live now and settled into because we used to go fishing there Memorial Weekend, and I always saw a deer, so I said, well, that'll be a place to try anyways. And 
And it was kind of ironic. The first trip I made north, after that week up north, I felt it was hard to go back and hunt in southern Maine. I don't know why it was, but it was just like something in my mind. It was it's like I got a love for it in one week. <laughs> it was big, you know, it was a, a bigger area than I'd ever been in. And, you know, you see that big buck sign. And I'd seen we had some little bit of snow that week off and on. And I followed a few big buck tracks. And I just got intrigued by it. So I did still have to hunt down in southern Maine for a, a little bit more off and, off and on, but I did take my time every year when I could get it. By then I had started, uh, I only, I only uh, after that first two trips up north, I, uh, I ended up going with my father-in-law. He was a lobsterman, and I helped him for a couple of years as a stern man. And then I bought my own boat and went lobstering on my own. And then I periodically got some time to go north every year, but that's the only place I wanted to go when I hunted. I'd drive up north three hours to hunt for two days, you know, and then go back and go back lobstering. So anyway, I told my wife back then, I said, I want to, I wanted, I always wanted to think of something I could do to make a living in the, you know, being part in the woods. So, I said, let's let's uh, start a sporting camp and uh, guide people and stuff, you know. So just ran on that dream, that's all. And I lobstered for nine years, and then we sold that business and built our built a business up here, you know, an outfitting business, and ran that for 22 years, I think. We sold that four years ago now. It'll be five years, actually, in December. So meanwhile... <clears throat> I started guiding the hunters, the deer hunters, and, and uh, you know, got to learn a lot from that about people and, and deer as well because it got me in the woods, you know, every day of the season for years and years and years. And, and then uh, that led into I decided to write a book about it because my hunters kept saying, why don't you write a book about this stuff? I'd be telling stories at the table every night, you know, and the hunters would come in, you know, and, so I did. So I wrote my first book, and I titled it uh, "Hunting Big Woods Bucks," and that was a that was a term that I coined back then. Back I think that was in two thousand and five. I think when I wrote my first book, and uh, now you see it you see it everywhere. You know, you see big woods bucks everywhere. It used to be northern the north woods and northern woods and northern deer and all that but everybody uses big woods bucks now so but anyways and that's that's how my i started my business with a partner after that my it was a buddy of mine a client chris dalty and he said hey what do you think about getting a camera and filming some of this stuff you do and i go yeah sure so we just kind of started that way and and uh kind of moved it along to where it is now you know it was a slow start because i had my other business going on guiding and stuff so but anyways that's kind of what happened just kept kept in the woods and studying i was always a a student of the woods anyways from the time i remember when i was a six seven eight years old running around the woods all day back in those days my mother would kick you out of the house you know and be back for supper and that was it so <clears throat> i ran around in the woods and stuff most every day not that we had 
huge woods, but big enough to roam around in and see things, you know. They they always feel pretty big when you're that young too, don't right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah for sure. It's all <clears throat> it's all relative. So um, I, I, well, I heard, guess that. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say I heard you say once. Speaking of uh, this big woods hunting, um, I heard you say once that you either love it or you hate it when people try this kind of hunting or hunting in this kind of place. Um, why is that? And why is it that you ended up loving it so much? Well, <clears throat> I loved it so much just because I always loved the woods and the bigger the better. And I was never, I was never afraid in the woods. And I, I think back now on that, uh, when I used to first started hunting, I never thought about being lost. I never thought that I needed to be right with somebody else, even at 10 years old. I started rabbit hunting with my grandfather. He had beagles when I was 10 years old, and I'd roam around by myself. My snowshoes were taller than I was, and I'd catch up with him during the day, you know, and we'd get a rabbit running. If I didn't know where he was, I'd go find his, make a circle, find my grandfather's track, and follow it till I caught up to him. And But never, never ever thought about being lost and uh so when i got to the big woods i was the same way the first couple years i went up north i never even carried a compass and then i got a little turned around in a snowstorm one day and i said you know compass probably would be a handy (laughs) tool to have up here and and back then there was not as many logging roads as there is now either was some some really huge pieces of woods with no logging roads but so when I started, to, I just figured everybody would like it. You know, I just was like, I liked it. So you know how you are. You typically tend to think everybody kind of maybe thinks a little bit alike, all hunters maybe anyway. But um, when I started to realize that not everybody liked it is when I started guiding clients. And I could see even the ones that I took, some of them that I took, they wouldn't they were they were there for that year and then they it wasn't their cup of tea and they'd never come back and then i saw it a lot more with guides that uh, uh clients that weren't guided they come up to they just rented a cabin and went and did their own thing uh some of them would leave ha- halfway through the week even some of the guided ones you know by wednesday or thursday they'd pack up and go home wow. and you know they would never tell you the r- real reason why but but it boiled down to a couple of things, and one of them it shouldn't have been was the low deer densities because we always told them, if you're going to come up north, I always would was honest with people, you're not going to see a lot of deer because there used to be all the deer up north, but when they started back in the 70s and 80s and even through the 90s when the logging really accelerated with mechanized equipment, they cut a lot of the deer wintering areas, or actually most of them, and the deer herds plummeted up north. Meanwhile, they were recovering in the south, or they were building up. So now it's opposite. All the deer in southern Maine now, and the, the deer are fewer and further between in northern Maine. And but I would always tell people that you know if you I told I used to tell people if you see five or six deer in the week, you've had a good week up here, because if you might see the the one buck you want to see and get, you know it's this is an area where you can shoot a buck of a lifetime, you know, a big heavy-bodied buck with heavy antlers and stuff. And that was kind of like the mystique of most people 
loving it. They didn't care if they didn't see many deer, but they knew they were there. They saw the buck sign that you on huge trees and the huge tracks, and they'd see them at the tagging station, other guys getting them or on the game pole at camp, and they knew they were there, and they were willing to put the time in to, for their chance of getting one of those once-in-a-lifetime bucks. So that's how I got to learn that they either loved or they hated it. But the bottom line with most of it was fear, and I've written that in my new book. Fear is the biggest obstacle people have to hunting in the big woods, and the biggest fear is being lost, which I never related to. Like I told you, I never thought about it, but, you know, I realized that even with people I guided that they were nervous being right with me. You know, we'd be on a one-on-one hunt tracking a buck or something, and when they start asking you, you know, how far out are we and which way's back, you know they're nervous, right? <laughs> so that's how I got to figure out that people were basically scared of the woods, scared of being lost, or scared of spending the night in the woods, and that was a limiting factor. So it still is. To this day, most people don't get even up here, a quarter of a mile from the roads, any of the logging roads or anything, a quarter of a mile about it for most people. Hmm. So. What do you what do you consider big woods? Like, what are the kinds of places that you hunt? Um, and I guess also, I know, I think you've mentioned you've hunted a number of other states too. I'd be curious to hear kind of where all you've experienced this kind of hunting too. Okay, what my definition of the big woods is anywhere that deer don't have access to agricultural crops or suburban areas where there's neighborhoods where they can eat shrubs and stuff. In other words, not really contact with people on a, on a regular basis, you know. So, because agricultural crop, crops is what determines what deer do, right? That's where you, most people, all you hear about, people talk about, when they're white-tailed deer hunting is patterning deer between you got to know where the feeding areas are and the bedding areas. Well, that's only because they're limited to feed where the crops are because the woods is all browsed out where there is no feed basically in the woods. Mm-hmm. So they have to go to crops, which makes them patternable. In the big woods, the same food is about everywhere in the woods. Now it's different different times of the year. But there's all kinds of green plants in the woods and mushrooms and nuts, and and they don't go to any one place. These deer just roam, even the does. You know, they'll be on maybe one ridge one day or maybe a week. They feed up and down a ridge, and then they might cross a ravine and go onto another ridge a half a mile or a mile away and spend a week or a few days over there. They just roam around, even the even the does, you're not going to pattern them. You know, you can find deer trails in the woods and stuff where you might be a better chance to, you know, to get one if you were sitting or something, you're going to get on a stand. Yes, there's places you can do that, but it's not because they're going from a feeding area to a bedding area. They're just traveling from one place to the next, basically. And as far as the states go, I've hunted in... uh, Well, on the east side, you know, I've hunted around New England, you know, Maine and New Hampshire and Mass, 
actually shot my first Massachusetts buck last fall with my muzzleloader. Hunted the Adirondacks in New York, and uh, I hunted like North Carolina and stuff, you know, years ago. But as far as for tracking, I've hunted in uh, Montana, the UP of Michigan, Minnesota, and Ontario, Northwest Ontario, which is right above Minnesota there. But all these places I go to, it's for the bigger woods, you know. I don't go there to hunt around farmland. I go to hunt in the big woods. Like Montana, the, the eastern part's all prairie and agriculture, and the west is all those big mountains. Well, that's where I hunt, you know. So, uh, so have you, space, you, in, there's differences in the deer a little bit from one area to the next, but it's not enough to be hard to figure out. Mostly it's because the deer populations are different in those different areas, you know. Like what I saw up in the UP of Michigan was probably similar amount of deer as back here. Uh, when we first started hunting Ontario, there was quite a few more deer than here. In Montana, there's they're in pockets, but there's places where there's more deer and places that's the same. So you just got to get used to the amount of deer, and that controls kind of how far the big bucks will travel, you know. But people have asked me, what's my favorite place to hunt? And it's still right here in Maine, believe it or not. I just, something about you've got a chance to kill these big bucks, you know, that dress well over 200 and and uh the tracks are bigger you know everywhere else you go the tracks aren't as big as here I, actually up up in the up i found some tracks that were big like here but for the most part they're not because it's a different the bucks we have in northern maine northern new hampshire right up in new brunswick and quebec it's a northern borealis whitetail which is the largest subspecies and uh so they have the they have the largest tracks i know we shot some my heaviest deer i shot was actually in ontario but he had nowhere as near the foot as some of the big ones here uh that one dressed 280 but it's a different subspecies i think it's the probably the northern uh, like probably the dakota whitetails probably spread north or whatever up into ontario because up there where we hunted it's the deer weren't always there, you know. They they kind of spread north over the years. So, so but anyways, that's yeah. The sounds like you've been able to kind of put your big big woods strategy into action. You know, surprisingly, a lot of different places, which is pretty interesting to me. Um, so I want to dive into the details of how exactly you do that. But one of the things that I have kind of wondered about right out the gate is when you talk about the you know deer hunter like myself here in southern Michigan and I hunt a lot of the Midwest where I am hunting that kind of ag land, woodlots and ag fields type landscape, just like you said, there's a lot of that um, figuring out where they bed, figuring out where they feed, trying to intercept them, patterning deer, doing a lot of off-season scouting, hanging tree stands, all that kind of stuff. So our off-season is full of all sorts of preparation. But as a big woods tracker, what do you do in the off season? Are you scouting and doing a whole lot of preparation or is the hunt for you really just getting out there and finding a track and going? 
Yeah, that's really what it is because uh, I'm not a sitter. Never have been. Even when I was a kid, I couldn't. I couldn't sit very long. I don't have any patience for it. So I'm either still hunting if it's bare ground. I still hunt around. I call it scouting now because I don't really want to shoot one on bare ground. I'd rather track one down, you know. But I go out and go through the motions, and I go and like around here. I'm so familiar with my area that I just go check some areas I might not have hunted for 10 or even 20 years. I go back, you know, they might have gone downhill from logging or something else, but a lot of times those areas, they like come full circle and it's good again, you know. So I go out and all I look for when I'm scouting, even in the spring, is basically what I'm looking for is where the big bucks travel. I'll incidentally find out where the does are hanging out. You know, they're always hanging around where the best feed is in the woods, which is typically the newer uh, logging, you know, the newer cuttings, mm-hmm. because that's where the best feed grows, and the does take their their fawns there to raise them up. So those will attract the bucks later in the season, you know, once the rut kicks in. But these big bucks are... In the big woods, they're real secretive creature. You can't believe how secretive they are. There's places they go that, without snow, you would never find them. You would never, you'd never go there to find some of the places they go to lay down or even and hang out. You know, it could be right to the tops of the highest mountains or down in these swamps. But they're reclusive. They're really reclusive animal, and but. I'll tell you the key here for me of locating the big bucks is a signpost rub, and that's another that's another term that I coined back when I wrote my first book because I kept finding these rubs in the woods up here that they look different than other ones, and I started studying them a little bit because I was always curious any, anyways about things in the woods, and I could see that the same tree had been rubbed Year after year, you could see the you could see the growth rings where it kept healing over and healing over, and it actually someone would be rotted right to the middle. They'd been rubbed so many years, and I called them signposts because what I figured that what it is is it's a place where they put scent and communicate. And now with trail cameras, you can. I mean, I had the theory. I said it's got to be that, but now with trail cameras, you can prove it because you can watch how they rub those. They're not rubbing them as much out of aggression all the time as they are just to put scent. And sometimes they, quite frankly, they go by them and they don't rub them. They'll just smell them and keep going. They want to see who's there. It's like a communication point. Well, a lot of those places, there'll be several bucks that overlap right there. That's like the spoke of a wheel or the hub of a wheel, you know, where those different bucks cross paths and that is a real key i call it that's the key to unlocking the secret of the big woods when you when you locate a bunch of those in the woods you know and uh they're not necessarily that easy to find until you know what to look for but uh i mean i've had guys that i've taught and stuff and read my books that still never found one and uh if i've taken them in the woods and showed them or explained it a little bit better, they go and find them, and they start sending me pictures back of the ones they found. So are and they, up, 
Excuse me? No, sorry, I was just going to say, so are there specific types of places that you usually find a signpost rub? Like, is it at a junction of some kind of different type of terrain, or where where do you find these, or can they be anywhere? Well, up here, 95 to even more percent of the rubs are on a specific tree, and it's a brown ash, or you'd call, if you looked it up in a tree book, it'd be a black ash. And I think it's because that bark on that tree, it's like balsa wood. I think it holds a scent. And I also think it's because it's it's a rare tree. It's not like a maple tree or a birch tree. It's They don't grow everywhere. They grow around wet ground. So they grow around uh, cedar swamps, spring seeps down through the woods. Up in the, Even up in the mountains, they'll grow if there's a seep where they got to have a lot of water. So that's how you find those. So I don't. I don't go looking in the woods. There's too many trees in the woods to look for a signpost rub, so I walk the wet areas until I find the trees that the rub's most likely on. That's how I scout. And if I find these brown ash and I get through an area with brown ash and I don't see any rubs on them, there ain't too many bucks around because they don't they got to rub them, you know. And then when you get down south of here, Towards the middle of Maine, things change a little bit, and they start as different ones you'll find signpost rubs on, and it transitions into things like white oak, hemlock, uh, red cedar. When you get down beyond Maine and you get into southern New England, there's red cedar, and red cedar goes all the way into the south. I found signpost rubs in Tennessee turkey hunting in the spring on uh, red cedar trees. You know, and those grow probably about anywhere, but you see them a lot around abandoned fields and stuff. They'll grow up around the edges. So in your area, if you know what tree to look for, you go look for those trees, and you'll find signposts if if it's if it's a a big enough woods where bucks can grow old. Because if they can't grow old, you're never going to find a signpost because it has to be rubbed enough years to make one right does it make sense to you mm-hmm. so if a if a buck gets shot when he's two or three years old he's not really he might have started to rub if he rubbed two years or three years and then you you kill that buck then it's probably the end of that signpost unless there was already several big bucks making one which if you you know most places aren't like that you know you got to get remote to places that grow enough big bucks. Now, I, I know those those places in Iowa and Kansas where they shoot all those big bucks, but the reality is most of those big bucks aren't really that old, you know. So you need old age to create signposts, and signposts would be the key in the big woods to finding where the bucks travel. So, so back to the original question then, uh, which was about the preparation and scouting. Is, is there anything else you do uh, on the off-season other than looking for those signposts? Anything else before we move on to the actual in-season stuff? Nope. If I'm going to scout new areas, I go in the, I'll go in the spring. As soon as the snow leaves the ground, late April, early May, before it greens up, I'll go check some new places because you'll still see the rubs and scrapes in the fall. 
<coughs> excuse me. And then if I'm going to scout in the fall, I'll scout the last week before the season. Because before that, they ain't there. They're roamed around somewhere else in their territory. And what changes them really here is when the leaves drop in early October, they move. Wherever their summer range was, where they're feeding in a cot or whatever it was, as soon as them leaves drop off and the woods opens up, they move to a different area. They get they get back with this green growth or swamps or they just they feel like they're they're out in the open, in other words, once the leaves fall, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the only two times I scout. Alright. So if so- I see I can go hunt there when the snow flies. Yep. Now, what about before the snow flies? When the season opens, there's not snow yet. Do you do you try any dry ground tracking? Is there anything you do before the snow falls, or do you just follow the snow or wait for it? No, I. Well, I. It's yes to both of them. I I stay here at home when it's bare ground, and I. I scout around. I go check some of the places where I know there's signposts, see if they're hit, see what it looks like. <clears throat> the best time to, to track, you can track on bare ground. It's very difficult, but the best time is right after a rain where it flattens all the leaves out, and then you really only have about a day, and then there's more tracks laid down, and you can't do it anymore. You know what I mean? And then when you do find it, you've got to find a track, you know, one of those big ones that's track is bigger than all the rest of the tracks, so it doesn't blend in with them. You know, if you come across other tracks, <clears throat> it'd be easy enough to, to sort it out, you know. And typically they'll sink in deeper in the leaves and all that. But I've tracked a number of them on bare ground before, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's slower going. You really... The hard part is, is you, you, your eyes are on the ground all the time, so you're not looking around, whereas when there's snow, you can look out that track, sometimes 40, 50 yards, and you don't have to look at the ground anymore. You know, you can look ahead, look for a deal. Yeah. Well, I think now is a good time to take a quick break for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Justin Mason, a land specialist out of Illinois. And Justin is going to be telling us about what some things are to consider when looking at a property that frequently floods. I think the biggest thing to consider when looking at a a property that floods, there's a misconception that flooded ground doesn't hold deer. And I I have found that personally on my own farm to be false. Um, I had perfect video of this just a couple of weeks ago. The river got up less than 48 hours later, the deer were, were back in there. So I think what if you have property that floods you need to try to identify kind of that high ground and make sure you know that the high ground has as much food and cover on it as you can get that way when it pushes those deer out they have a place to go and hopefully you can still keep them on your property without losing them to your neighbor if you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that justin currently has listed for sale visit whitetailproperties.com backslash mason that's m-a-s so I feel like a lot of guys and girls that hunt um, in the Midwest or other of these these kind of generic deer hunting types of examples where most of the media and stuff comes out of, um, 
there's not quite as much of a focus on paying attention to deer tracks. Everyone wants to focus on trail cameras or food plots or whatever it might be, but there's been kind of this uh, this lack of interest in tracks in a lot of both media and simply how most average guys are hunting. So in a bare ground scenario, what should the average deer hunter know, whether or not they're going to track a buck or not? What should they know about tracks or what can you tell us about tracks that can help us, you know, better determine what is a big buck by its track or how fresh is it or anything else that we should be paying attention to when it comes to that kind of sign? Well, again, a track is relevant to your area. You know, a track, what I would call a big track out here, you probably won't find one in southern Michigan that size. So you've got to go with what's a big track for your area. So for here... I call it a three by three track or a three by three and a half. Typically they're a little longer than they are wide, but if I find a three by three track, I'm pretty well assured unless it's late season when they've lost a lot of weight that that buck is going to field dress over 200 pounds. That's the kind of bucks I like to go after. You know, they're going to be a mature buck, you know, but, out your way, in southern Michigan, that might be a two-by-two-and-a-half track. I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. But up in northern Michigan, in the UP, I did see some, you know, some of them three-by-three-and-a-half tracks. I saw, I saw some up there. But you'd have to get used to your own area, what's a normal size. But the biggest, the biggest thing anybody in the area is going to say, if they're used to seeing deer tracks, they're going to say, wow, that's a, a big track. But the mature buck is going to have the dew claws will be, no matter what size the print is, his dew claws are going to be set quite a bit back from the back of his hoof, say two inches or more, and it'll be usually a little wider than the hoof. So in other words, where you see those dew claws, those prints will be wider than the than the track itself from the horse. And the dew claws will be turned more perpendicular to the hoof, almost 90 degrees. Whereas like a doe, typically their dew claws are almost in line. They're turned a little bit, but not much. Hmm. The other key thing, if you had snow, you'll never know on bare ground, but even in an inch or two of snow, a mature buck will drag his feet. So you'll see those drag marks, and if you see drag marks in an inch or two of snow, that's an older buck. They just get lazier when they get older, and they don't pick their feet up as much. And that would be anywhere. That would be if if your big bucks in your area dress out 150 pounds, like in the Adirondacks, they've got some nice rack bucks, but you know, to shoot a buck over 180 pounds is not real common. Most of those mature bucks, they get weigh 150 pounds, 160 pounds, but they'll be dragging their feet all the time. Those older bucks, you know, you get a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old buck, he'd be dragging his feet. So what about the, the things that tell you how recently a track was made? What are the things you're looking for, whether it be on bare ground or snow? What are the things you look for on that? 
Well, that's one of the hardest things for a tracker to have to learn because it's one of the most important things because how far you might be behind a buck <clears throat> determines how fast you're going to go on the track. So I call a fresh track any track made in the night because I, I get out at daylight and I'm looking for a track. If I find a track that was made the night before, to me, that's a fresh track. If it's an hour old or eight hours old, that's a buck I'm going to follow. Now, I might, if I'm on an eight-hour-old one, I might, if I see a fresher one, I'll switch over to it as long as it's big enough. But I always start somewhere. Because if you follow one buck, eventually it's probably going to cross paths with another one. So, but it is the hardest thing to determine. But I can tell you one thing about about a track in the snow is, is the minute that track is made, it starts to change. It's either freezing and evaporating or it's melting, you know, thawing and melting. Either way, it changes. Now, you, it's going to be a subtle change in the beginning for that first hour, but beyond that, you'll, you'll, you'll notice if you know what to look for, which is basically the edge where the hoof punches through the snow, that deteriorates first, that sharp edge made in the dust or the wet stuff that's pushed out in front will melt before it melts down inside the print or freezes down in the print. And that's just a guideline. The rest of it depends on temperature. If it's zero, it's going to deteriorate quicker than if it's 25 degrees. So you almost got to have like a an internal calculator you know, and that's only, you're only going to get that from experience, you know. What about, um, what about the bare ground track? Anything on that front that you look forward to, to determine the freshness there? Is it, is it similar in that you're just looking for the sharp edges or anything else? Well, you can't see that in the, like I said, on the, on bare ground, you know, unless you saw one in the dirt, like if you were yeah, in some yeah. fields. I'm never in there, but in the woods and the leaves, they're just going to be punch marks. And you'll see the, <clears throat> that since all the rain flattens the, the leaves, everything's flat. When they punch that in, the edge of them leaves will flip up, like straight up. You can actually, you can see those for a ways down through the woods. Now, not 50 yards, but you can certainly see them for 10 steps, 10 or 12 steps ahead, you know. And you'll see it punched up, crisp like that. And uh, they'll stay that way even when the leaves dry out. But like I said, the hardest problem with the bare ground is every day there's more tracks getting added to the wood. So they start everything starts blending together. That's why you can't really follow them too much after the first day. Now, that being said, if you get in an area that there's very few deer, you won't cross as many tracks. So you could possibly maybe go another day. Or sometimes I just take a track like that to see if I can get at least get to some new sign. I, I've done that a lot of times in a new area. Follow a track on bare ground. I might be only able to follow it for a quarter or a half a mile before it gets into some, well, we call it softwood, you know, you, people call it the pines, but in the spruce and fir needles, 
the tracks will disappear in there, but that track still might take me to a signpost rub or a scrape line, or it might take me to something that shows me where that buck is traveling, you know? <laughs> going, going back a second to um, determining what kind of deer you're tracking, um, I think I remember, I, I do remember reading in some different places where people also pay attention to things like the, the length of the stride or the width of the, between the, each footstep. Is that something you pay attention to personally? Yeah, I wrote about that in my first book. I put some illustrations in that because, and, and there's a variable in that because the same deer can walk fast or slow and change his stride like, like we could do it. So you, you, sometimes a stride just means he's hurrying. But if you follow one long enough, you'll get to figure out what his normal walk is. And a longer stride means it's a longer deer or taller, or however you want to put it. He's longer, and a longer deer is going to weigh more. Because they're not all built the same. They're not all going to weigh over 200 pounds up here. And it's like people or any other animal. You know, you've got long, thin ones, short, squat ones, whatever it is. They're all different shapes. And then the I call it the stance, or some people call it stag, how they stagger the width. That determines as a deer gets bigger, that's going to widen out, right, his shoulder and his chest he gets bigger and thicker, so that's normally going to widen out. But up here, I look for I look for a buck that's got 8 inches side to side, 8 to 12 inches, and uh, that'll be a pretty good buck. 12 inches will be a real big one. But So, yeah, I look for that. Size of the print. Uh, dragging his feet, like I said, is a real key. Because then I know it's it's an old buck, you know, an old mature buck. Mm-hmm. When you said the stance you were measuring, you know, 12 inches, is that from the outside of the print to the opposite outside, or is that inside to inside? Well, I just, I just call it from, like, the center to the center, however you want to do it. But gotcha. it isn't splitting hairs. You know, you don't have to split hairs with it. But when you look down and it looks like it's 8 inches wide, yeah, to the center or to the outside, it's, that's a good one. And if you get out to 12, it's a big one. Now, when you get into areas where the deer are smaller, they're probably never going to get 12 inches. You know, 8 inches might be the biggest size, and, you know, 5 or 6 might be on the narrow side, you know. Yep, yep, all relative. That makes sense. Yeah, that's just, I always look at that because, out here and in, in a lot of the north, people are more interested in the weight than they are in the antlers. Because when you're hunting in the big woods, if you were trying to hunt for a certain buck with a certain set of antlers or only shoot a buck with big antlers, you ain't going to shoot many bucks, I'll tell you. Because you ain't going to have time usually to even see what it's got when you're tracking. You know, you might see he's got a rack. I don't care if it's a basket rack eight pointer if he's eight years old and he weighs 250 pounds that's more of a trophy to me than a three 
and a half year old that scores 150. We don't up here. We don't. I mean, we have an antler club in the state, and yeah, it's great. You know, people shoot some big rack bucks. I look as it is a bonus if you get one with a big body, and he's got a rack to go with it. It's just a bonus. I, I'll hunt for the big deer over the big rack any day. Different what, mindset. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand that. Um, what does what does a day in the life of this kind of hunting look like then? Can you walk us through when you start, how the how the process begins, what your thought process is then throughout the entire maybe you could like give us a hypothetical scenario you could walk us through? Yeah. I start every morning at, at daylight. I'm usually driving to where I want to go hunt. I'll pick an area. I might pull. Sometimes I don't know. This is kind of funny, but I drive out my driveway in the morning, and sometimes I don't know if, which way I'm going. I don't even know where I'm going to hunt for the day. Now, that being said, it might be determined by where the early snow is because a lot of time we got mountains here and sometimes there's only snow in the mountains you know you don't have snow in the bottom so i got to go hunt some mountain somewhere so i head out and i'm driving to where i'm going to go and if i'm lucky which i'm not very often but i might <laughs> if i see a track crossing the logging road on the way to where i'm going i get out and i look at it and it's going somewhere where I know there isn't going to be a bunch of hunters, I'll get right on that one. I've shot quite a few that way, but usually I end up driving to where I want to hunt and then just striking off through the woods, you know, whether it's up over a mountain and down another valley to another. I just strike off trying to find the track I want. And uh, Are you striking off with a gold mind? What's that? Uh, sorry, I was going to say, are you striking off with like a destination in mind or are you heading towards one of those signpost rubs you found or do you just say, all right, I'm heading off into this general region and just going to see where it takes me? Hey, you're pretty observant. You keyed <laughs> in on that signpost and yes, that's what I do. I'll usually make a route. I'll usually say I'm going to hit, I'm going up through this side of this mountain, through this notch. There's a signpost on the back side. I'm going to check that one, and there's one over in another valley. Then I'll go check that one. And and you're right. If you go to enough of them signposts, if you can check enough of them on any day, you're going to find a big buck track there. If you're lucky you find it at the first one, and if you're not, you might not find a track till noontime. But, you know, it's just, just the way it goes some days. So when I find my track, I just... I start on it, you know, if I know it's made in the night, which, and that's another thing to know. Some people say, well, how do you know if it was made that night or the night before or three nights ago? Well, that's very easy to tell. If you get used to, you know, looking at snow, the nighttime track, because once a track goes through one day, it really changes, especially if it was, the sun was out the day before, not even if it melted, but um, it changes a lot. It's not that hard once you get used to it to tell what's made in the night. So I just follow that track. And when I get on a track, I'm going with the idea that I got to catch up to this buck so I can hunt him. Cause if you don't catch up to him, you're not in the game yet. 
too many guys will go out there and get on a track and they find a track and they start hunting that track like Elma Fudd. <laughs> One step and looking all around, well, you chances are you're never going to see that buck. I mean, it just you're not going to because that buck could be, he might have, you might get lucky and he's laying down a half a mile away and he might be five miles away and you don't know as you get going and see what he's doing, you know, because of, the story of that buck, whatever buck you track, he's writing his life in the snow, and that's what's so fun about tracking, is he's showing you his life, what he's doing, where he's going, what he's up to right now this time of year. It's all written for you in the snow if you know how to interpret it, right? He starts wandering around, or he might start chasing does, and even earlier, you know, before the rut starts, you might find some does, and they know where all the does are. They can go right from one bunch to the next. They might, up here where the population is as heavy, you might get into some areas where there's a little pocket of does. There might be two or three does, four does, and the next might, bunch might be a mile away. So he just beat feet for that mile till he gets over there. So that's what you got to do. you got to keep going. And then when he's done his route for the night, whenever he got done, He's going to, nine times out of ten, sometimes you get thrown off during the rut. They don't, they kind of don't eat as much, but usually they'll, they'll eat, feed around, wander around, and then they lay down. They're going to be, if you see that sign where they're wandering and feeding around quite a bit in a small area, he's right there. He's going to be laying right there somewhere close, and it might already be too late because sometimes he's laid close enough where he, he sees you already because they always lay watching their backtrack for danger. <clears throat> so that sign will tell you, though, that, oh, I stop immediately and I start looking around. He might be right there. He might be up on that ridge up there you're looking at. And then i got to try to figure out if I can maybe get a chance to shoot him in his bed laying down or shoot him when he gets out of his bed or something. What? But sometimes... That might not be till afternoon. I, I've been on bucks before and gone right steady, fast as I could walk for five or six hours, never stop to catch up to one. So you're so moving you're as fast. To... Yeah, you're moving as fast as you can go all the way until you see the wandering kind of tracks. Is there anything else that would indicate it's time to slow down? <clears throat> well, if he picks up a doe and gets with a doe, if he starts off staying with a doe, they may not be all that far again, right? So anything like that is what you've got to look for. But typically, I mean, that's just the life of a buck, you know. He's got to, he's got to eat, sleep, and breathe and, and watch out for danger. And, and it's as really as simple as that. That's all they do, right? Mm-hmm. So you just got to figure out what he's doing where he might be, and that, when I go through my day, I call track, and I call it an emotional roller coaster ride, because you're up, you're down, you're up, you're down, you know, you think he's right close, and then, oh no, he's struck off again with a fast pace, he's way over there, or, you know, it's just, you don't know, you got to turn left here, you got to turn right there, all kinds of decisions all day. That's why you don't shoot one every day, right? Right, right. <laughs> 
why it's so fun. If you could go out and shoot one every day, I wouldn't bother going. It'd be too easy. Tell me this. So, tell me when you uh, when you see that he's slowed down, and you think he's close now. He's been wandering around. Maybe you've seen sign of him rubbing a tree or feeding or something like that. What is your? How much time do you spend then at that point? Now that you think he's slowed down, do you just do you do you now get into that Elmer Fudd mode where you glass and then you take a few steps and you glass and you take a few steps, or what's your process at that point? Well, I don't glass until I spot something I can't recognize because it's. I don't take enough time to glass around. Some people do. It's fine. I I don't. I look for I look for things out of place, you know, like a an ear or an eye. Or, but first thing I try to do is, and again, it's because I hunt in the mountains a lot. Usually, when they're going to lay down, if they're up on a ridge somewhere or they turn up the ridge, they lay down up high so they can look down right? Easy to escape danger that way. And they usually go up on the edge of the green growth up in the mountain where it's thicker and lay either on the edge of it or just in it. So if I see a buck feeding around and he, he heads up and I can see a green bluff up, up there, I'm not going to follow that track up through the open because he's watching that track, or I assume he is. I make a circle downwind around it go up over the knob, around it, and make a complete circle to see if that track comes out. Because it won't take me, I won't be losing any time by doing that. So if I've got any doubt to whether I'm not sure if he's laying down, I make a quick loop like that. might take me 15, 20 minutes. But now I can confirm. If I cut a circle and his track didn't go out, guess what? Now I have that buck in a small area in the big woods. He's captive for me. Now I just got to try to see him. If I cut that loop and his track come out the other side, I just saved myself a lot of time of Elma Fudden, didn't I? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But some places you can't do that. Some places, the type of woods you're in, you can't make that circle. It's not going to work either because of the wind the terrain, you can't always do it. But if I can do it and make sense of it where it's not gonna I'm not gonna waste a lot of time, I'll do it. You mentioned wind, that you, you you circled down wind there. Do you think about or factor wind into your strategy at all at any other points of your of your day? Or is it just at that point where you think you know where he's at? Yeah, just when I think he's if I think if I think is as the buck is around, I stop paying attention to the wind. Other than that, doesn't make any difference. The wind blows four directions every minute anyways up in this country. But uh, quite frankly, sometimes once you've jumped a buck and he knows you're after him, he'll put the wind right in his back and walk, and he knows you're behind him, and you know he knows because he'll be walking along, and you'll see he'll make two or three jumps, and he'll pick up his pace. He smelt you getting closer. There's nothing you can do about it. You just keep going because eventually he's going to turn or the wind's going to change and you might get a chance again, you know? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask next is what happens when you do spook a deer? Um, do you wait a while or do you just get right after it? or What happens at that point? 
That's a good question because when I was in my training stages, because I had to teach myself all this stuff. I didn't have it. I didn't have my father didn't hunt up here. You know, I mean, he came up when I did, but he wasn't a tracker, and I didn't have anybody to teach me. I just I just rustled through it myself. But your first inclination is to go right after him because now it's you know you're close. But it's the worst thing to do in most cases. There's a couple exceptions, but. Up here, where the deer don't get pressured, and again, this is why it's different than big woods deer hunting is different in a lot of respects, and this is one of them. You know, you get in a lot of places where, where deer are pressured. They might run a long ways when they get spooked. But these deer, typically a buck is going to, he's going to run off maybe 100, 200, 300, 400 yards, whatever, and he's going to stop and look back nine out of ten times. Once in a while, you get what I call a runner that doesn't do that. His escape mode is to run a mile. And it's only because that's how he, every, every buck up here has lived to his age by escaping coyotes year-round. So once they figure out how to escape a coyote, that's what you are to them because they ain't used to being followed by people for the most part. So they're going to go off and they stop and they wait to see if something's fallen because probably they might have saw a little motion. They might have heard a twig snap, anything like that. And that's what just got them out of their bed and they just want to make sure it's nothing falling. They want to just put that little distance, you know. So I waited. I started waiting 15 minutes and that didn't work very good. So I, I pushed it to a half an hour. And once I did that, that was the key right there. That's killed more bucks up here than not just by me, by, by me writing about it. I had lots and lots of guys over the year told me after I wrote my first book, they said, you know what, I don't know why I never could figure that out, but it's perfect sense. He said, they tell me, and since they started doing it, they'd kill more bucks, you know. Because really the best time, your best, the hardest time to kill a buck is really if he's laying in his bed watching his backtrack. You think about that, right? He's got all the advantage. He's just laying there watching where he came from, and all he's got to do is catch a little movement, a flash or something, and he's out of there. You, Most of the time, you won't even see him. So, you know, you got to – the next time is your best chance. So if, if – if you go right after them, what happens is they just confirmed what they thought. Something's after them. Now the chase is on. You're going to be chasing them all day. Not to say you can't kill them that way, because I have, but but it's a lot harder, and you're going to put on a lot more miles. But by waiting, that buck's going to do a couple things. He's only got two choices. He's going to lay back down, which means he was not rested enough. from He hadn't been laying there long enough. Or he's been laying long enough to be rested up and he's going to go about his business and start checking scrapes or rubs or whatever he wants to do and check does. And that's the time, the best time to kill a buck is when he's on his feet moving. Because now he doesn't have the advantage. Yeah, he's going to always look behind him, but he's moving and you're moving and but you still your odds are way up. You see how that works? It does. Yep. And what really gives you the advantage, I tell people this all the time, 
<clears throat> just because there's snow on the ground doesn't make it a good chance to shoot a buck tracking because you've got to have some other things in your favor because if you're on a day when it's, uh, you know them days in the woods where it's deathly still, like you feel like you can hear a pin drop like a mile away? Oh, yeah. That's a hard day to kill a buck tracking because mm-hmm. they, they just, even if they're on their feet, they got that advantage, and no matter how quiet you can be, it's very difficult. The best, the best weather for killing a buck is wind. I don't care if it's blowing 50 miles an hour. I don't care if it's snowing. I call those buck killing days because all the all his advantage is gone. He's not going to smell you. Probably not going to see you because in the wind, you know, everything's the trees are moving, the leaves are rustling, things are swaying. They don't pick out your movement as well. Not to mean you're going to walk up on them, but what I'm saying is if you're sneaky in those kind of days, that's the time to get a look at one, you know? Mm-hmm. At this point in your, uh, I guess we'll call it your hunting career, what, what are the, what's your ratio of like actually seeing the buck that you pick up a track on? Like if you, if you pick up 10 tracks over the course of a season, do you end up seeing eight of those bucks? Do you see one of those bucks? How does that usually end up? Oh, see, just to see them? Oh, I, I don't know. I never figured that out. More than 50%. You know, I see more than half the ones I get on. And what about it shooting? It might be just, oh, you know, that's, that varies with the weather. And I'll give you a good example of that. This past fall, we had a year of crusty snow. Whenever we had snow and rain and it would freeze and make a crust, even when I went to Montana this year, we had a crust out there. They got a bunch of wet snow and then it got cold and froze. We hunted on crust. I got back here, I hunted on crust. Every day crunched around. And miraculously, I still did see a few of the bucks that I was on, but nowhere as near what I could have. I know that I had two weeks I hunted like that, the last week of rifle and the week of muzzleloader here in Maine, around here. And I saw, I saw more big bucks than I'd seen in quite a few years. And I think a lot of that was because Usually I shoot one, and then I ain't hunting around here no more to, to see anymore. But I was crunching around, but I still got to look at four or five. I ended up kind of a crazy thing. I I won't, I I didn't I I hit one with my muzzle load. I just nicked it, but I I missed one with my rifle. Didn't have much of a chance. Just fired when he was going disappearing. The last day of the season, and then I. Missed one with my muzzle loader here, and then nicked one, and then I saw a couple more that I couldn't get a shot at, and then I I missed one with my muzzle loader in mass, and then I shot one down there. But that was actually quiet going; it wasn't crunchy. But to to bring that back around, I don't really know. I don't really keep track of it, but I know back the older I got in my career the more picky i got about what buck i wanted to shoot and the older the buck 
those are the hardest ones to kill. So the odds are, you know, your odds are tipping the other way. To go out and shoot any buck is not a problem for me on probably any day. But, but to try to kill those biggest ones, that's why I like it so much. It's such a challenge. Mm-hmm. But I know back when I was guiding full-time, I only got to hunt days, like when I was guiding one-on-one hunters, if I got them a buck that week, I'd get to hunt maybe a day or two or whatever. And that's basically what I used to do. I'd take a day here and a day there, a couple days. But I remember in my first book, I still remember writing that because I actually did think back to how many days I hunted because it was easier because I, I didn't have many days. And it averaged, I shot, a, I shot my buck Every three days, in other words, it averaged, it took me three days to kill a buck. And they were good bucks, you know. It took me three days. Wow. Some of them was, might have been five. Several of them was the first day I went. But it averaged out to three. <laughs> is, uh, and I don't know if this is something maybe you know just from talking to a lot of other hunters in the area, but in the big woods type of situation like you're in up in northern Maine or maybe in the Adirondacks or the upper Great Lakes. Um, do you think that this kind of strategy, tracking bucks, is that the highest odds way to kill a buck, do you think, in this kind of area versus sitting around and waiting on one? You know, I say it is, and I know it is for me because I can't sit around, but uh, there is some guys that, if you're willing to put the time in sitting on a good place, you yeah, same thing. You might kill one the first day. I've, I've had clients I put on a stand and they kill them the first day out. I've had other, you know, obviously most of the hunters will sit all week and they don't see one. But for me, by far it is. And, and, and because I know there's a buck at the end of that track no matter what, all i got to do is get to them. See, that's different than sitting, and it's different than still hunting. Because you can be sitting, and you don't know in that woods where that buck is. You've got no idea. You don't have any idea if there's a buck within five miles of you. Right. And you're just hoping and waiting that one comes along when you're sitting there. But by tracking, the buck is there. you just got to do what it takes to catch up to him and then do what it takes to get your chance at them yeah definitely so yes odds are better anywhere there's snow if you learn how to track and you put it into practice i i can guarantee anybody if you stick with it and get good at it your success will be a lot higher than just sitting around and again i'm talking about big wood situations where the deer population tends to be less you're not sitting in a bean field where you can pass up five bucks a day till you get the one you want. I ain't talking about that. Right. But in the woods hunting, tracking for sure. What if more successful? What if you're uh, tracking all day and you never catch up to and it gets dark? Can you get back on that track the next morning the same at the same place, or do you try to cut it off, or is it just a lost cause and you just start brand new the next day? What do you do the next day? I start out new. I might not even go back to the same place. Because after I've left that buck, if i got to start again and he's got all night to travel, 
I'm starting way behind. I'd rather find one that I might only be a, a few hours behind, you know. I have, I've shot a few bucks that the track was a couple of days old, and I've taken one only out of necessity because I couldn't find anything else. But the biggest buck I shot here in Maine, when I got on that track, it was two days old, and it was the first week of the season. And that's usually when they don't travel as far because the rut's not even close, you know. The rut up north, it's probably the same in the UP, but here it's basically the 15th to the 30th. You can mark it on your calendar. That's when the breeding starts. And uh, I'm sure the UP is about the same. But I, it was the first week of the season, and, and uh, my client had shot, it's actually a gal, and she shot her first buck the second day out, Tuesday. So she asked me if she could go along with me, and I said, yeah, but I said, you gotta, you got to hold back if I tell you that when I'm getting close, I don't want you clomping around behind, right behind me. So I finally picked up this track at about 11 o'clock. I'd actually tracked a couple other ones, and one went into the, across into Canada, and the other one I caught up to when it wasn't big enough. So I got on this big track, and had a little. we had a dust and a snow the night before, and it was in it. I followed it down off this ridge, and he rubbed on a brown ash, and there was shavings there, and they had that dusting. And the way it was headed, I'm like, it wasn't like headed like into any big, real back, in any bad place. I said, I'm going to follow this thing. I might be able to catch him, even though it was 11, you know. And I didn't go probably from where I picked that track up. I don't know as I went much more than a half a mile. And he went in in this little knoll on this ridge, and he laid down, and he come back out and started down the ridge, and he caught up to, I don't know, it was three or four does of the smaller buck following him around. And he followed those tracks down over the ridge, and I could see where he caught up to him. It was written right in the snow. They all started running. And he started chasing them back up the ridge. And then they all started walking. And they went along. He followed them for a few hundred yards. And then he turned right off and went right down along the top of the ridge. And it got into a little bowl up in the ridge with some open hardwoods. And he started feeding there. And then he went across that and it went into an old cutting that was pretty slashy and thick, and he went in there, and I'm like, he's going to be laying in there somewhere. So I told her to hang back a little bit, keep me out of sight, and I pushed my way in there. It was some little maple whips and stuff, but I, it was a windy day. Like I was telling you about, you got wind to help you out, and the, there was a few little leaves stuck on those little maples that were rattling in the wind, and I got my gun kind of ready, and I was one step at a time in there. And I don't know how far I went in, not far, 50 yards maybe into that thicket. And I come to a, a skitter trail where I could, you know, there's an it'd be an opening. And I stuck my head out, looked down that skitter trail. That's where his track turned. And he was laying in his bed, looking back over his shoulder at me. You know, he didn't recognized me i don't know if he heard something and he turned his head but he was laying facing the other way which was odd but anyways 
I shot him right there, laying in his bed, tipped him right over right there. It was 19 paces. Wow. So that was a two-day-old track, so you never know. Yeah. Like I said, there's always a buck at the end of a track somewhere if you if you get to the end of it, right? <laughs> yep, yep. Do you think that there are any consistent traits or anything along those lines that make for a good big woods hunter? If you were to look at all the best big woods hunters that you know, do they have anything in common or any things? Yeah, of course they do. It's the number one thing is persistence. You don't give up. You don't quit. You just keep going. You got to have the stamina, but you got to be persistent. Too many people, and that's just generally. That's a that's a that's a general human trait, you know. People, especially nowadays, are, they give up on everything too easy when things start getting a little difficult. You know, it's, it's easy to quit, right? It's easy to give up on something. And I just think it's a human trait, but that's a that's the trait that that that'll kill a guy that wants to be a tracker. If you're going to give up because a buck crossed a stream, or he went up a steep hill, or he crossed a road, or he I don't know whatever it is. There's a lot of reasons you could give up. Oh, he got into some other deer tracks, and you got tangled up, and you couldn't figure it out. That's why people quit. You know, they just say, "I ah, ain't worth it." It ain't worth it to them, so to me it tells me the the prize at the end isn't worth it to them, so they won't be a tracker. If you're going to be a tracker, it's all about that that prize, getting to the prize at the end, and, and killing them is just the end result, you know. It's not, you know, that's not why we track, really. You know, if I had to go kill a buck, I've been invited a hundred times to all those places in the Midwest, Clients invited me to, you know, Kansas and all those places, and I just wouldn't go because I knew I didn't, I wouldn't enjoy myself trying to sit in a stand or something and pick out the buck I wanted. That's to me, that's not a, it's not a hunt for me. If it, I'm not saying it's not a hunt, but for me, it's not. I'm more into like trying to outsmart one, beat him on his own turf, you know. And I think you would find that that's really what keeps a, a tr- any tracker going is that prize at the end that's it's going to be worth it for them you know it's a it's a big accomplishment i i tell the new people that start tracking don't start out tracking the biggest track in the woods you can find because if that's where you start you're going to have a lot of lessons to learn you're going to have a lot of failure because those are the hard ones to kill i just tell them to to track something, find a track in the woods and follow it and see what it is. If it's a doe, great. You just saw a doe. Now you know how that doe walked around and how she acted. If it's a spike horn buck, shoot it. It's your first buck tracking. Next year you can look for a bigger one. You know, that's all part of getting the experience. But if you just try to <clears throat> go after those biggest ones, which I was guilty of, when I first started up north, that's all I wanted was one of them big bucks, you know. So when when I was fortunate enough to have snow, 
which, like I said, I didn't back in those years when I had my lobster in business, I couldn't go as much. I didn't have a lot of days every year with snow, but I always would find the biggest track I could find. Consequently, between that and not having a lot of time, it was, I was seven years. I tell people this now, people find it hard to believe. It took me seven years to kill my first buck track, and once I started. Wow. But I never gave up. I never thought anything of that. I never thought it was, I never thought I was failing at it or anything. I was learning all the time. I'd learn what they do. I'd chase them around. That's when I, that's when I figured out, you know, how to, you know, that I needed to wait a half an hour. But once I shot that first one, tracking, it was like clockwork every year, year after year after year after year from then on. Something but I had to put the seven years in. I try to help people now not have to go through the seven years by teaching them some things, but I hope it's not easy for everybody. Yeah, they go out, and I've heard stories of guys tell me the first time they went out and tracked something, they're walking along and the bucks stand there looking at them. Well, that stuff never happens to me. <laughs> I don't know why it happens to some people. They're just lucky, you know, but, but that luck doesn't stay. You've got to have the fundamentals and keep at it. Some- and part of that, I guess, what came of that, all of that stuff through guiding and all of the stuff over the years, several people came to me and said, you know, you really have a system of what you do. And I thought about that, and it came from several different people that didn't even know each other. And I, I got thinking about it, and they were actually right. What I do is a system. Not that I do everything exactly the same every day, but I have a system from what I wear to what I do to how I dress. Everything is a system because it's easy. If you have a system, you don't have to think about, well, what am I going to wear today? Or what am I going to, you know, there's, there's nothing else to think about. You just follow the system. So that's what, in this new book I wrote this past year, which is a storybook, of 25 of my bucks I shot tracking up here, well, not just here, but wherever. I just started somewhere. I started with the, my first tracking buck, and I wrote 25 stories, but the first chapter in it is all about that system I developed from learning how to navigate the map and compass, learning those skills, clothing, everything. Everything is a system, and you follow that, it'll be easier for you, you know, like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And I tell people, put your own personality in the system. Don't, don't try to be a clone of me because that'll be painful. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a guideline is what I'd say because everybody's going to dress a little different because bodies regulate heat differently and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Is there anything uh, important that we haven't touched on? When it comes to your system, any important other strategies or things to think about or things that you do during the day or through the course of the season that we haven't covered? Uh, not too much. I would just tell people don't think you got to um, – don't get over-analytical. People, people get uh, – I call it analysis paralysis. 
because <clears throat> a lot of people read this stuff. You know, they read either my articles or somebody else's, whoever else's writes, I don't know. But they read all this stuff, and maybe they've watched some DVDs on it, short films, and they get so much information in their head that they cannot make the right decision because they've got to, they've got to, there's so many things to sort through. I just tell people, don't, don't be like that. Don't worry about it. Just pick something because there'll be a hundred decisions to make every day. And if you, if you have to try to overanalyze which one you're going to pick, and then if it's the wrong one, you think you failed at it. Don't do that. Pick something and go because you're going to learn Every day on the track, you're going to learn what worked and what didn't work. And what works one day might not work the next. It doesn't work all the time. But you've got to go enough. If you, I'm telling anybody, if you follow a deer track, a buck track, long enough, day after day, year after year, I don't care how long it takes, the law of averages is going to catch up to you. It has to. Because it's all about catching up to a buck in the right place at the right time in the woods. That's all That's all killing a buck is. I've gone days and days that I was five minutes late or two minutes early. Or my timing was off. And then other time, you go out the next day and your timing's perfect. You step up over this knoll and you look down the other side, the buck's right there. It's all timing. You got to catch up to them at the right place to be able to to, uh, to be able to kill them. I'll tell you what I um, I'm really interested in in trying to do this kind of hunting. You know, the more I've read about it and listened to people tell stories like you, it definitely it definitely seems like a good time and a nice change of pace from sitting in a tree all the time. So. Um, I'm thinking that uh, my northern Michigan rifle hunting this year might be more tracking and less sitting. So, very helpful stuff, Hale. I really appreciate you sharing this with us. And um, if people want to learn more, if people want to check out your books or your website or all the different stuff you've got going on, where can they find that? They can find everything at bigwoodsbucks.com. It's pretty simple. If they want to contact me, my email's there. Uh, Big Woods Bucks, I've assembled a team of guys that I did that because I knew everybody wouldn't relate to me, you know, the way I hunt exactly, you know, because I know a lot of guys when I'm doing seminars, they look at me and I'm I'm tall and lanky, you know, and, and they go, I don't think I could keep up with him. I don't think I could go that fast. Well, you don't have to. So I got a bunch of guys that are good deer trackers too and good deer hunters and they're on the team, and they write articles, and they do a lot of the same stuff. And uh, so there's something there for everybody. So you can find some articles on the website. We're actually <clears throat> we're about to launch within the next week or so here a club side of the website, which is going to give the hunters a forum to communicate with each other and ask questions and, and ask questions of us and stuff. And there'll be a blog on the home page. We're revamping the whole thing. And then all the films, all the short films we produce are going to go into that club side. We're going to charge like 3 bucks a month or 30 bucks a year for all that to pay for the editing. And then uh, 
we'll start a podcast here coming right up, and that's probably going to start within the next week or so, too, and that you can find at the website. or Actually, that'll be on iTunes, whatever that is, because I don't do it. But <laughs> I, I'm told you can get us on iTunes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> coming up for, I'm sure you're on iTunes, too, right? Yep, yep, that's the place to be. So it's good that you'll have your podcast there, too. Yeah, we also got, if they get to the website, you know, besides books and DVDs and that stuff, We've got some other products that relate to the system. We, we've got our own clothing line designed for tracking. It's a tracking jacket and pants, and it's actually, we, we had Silent Predator make it with Woolrich Wool, good stuff. So something there for everybody, not just trackers, but any of the, the hunters that hunt, like to hunt in the big woods or anywhere and whatever. We're just trying to help people learn. Awesome. Well, I, I certainly think you achieved that goal, at least today, Hal. I've learned a lot. I think uh, I think everyone listening has, too. So thank you, Hal, for taking the time to do this. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hopefully send you a picture in about mm, 10 and a half months, maybe, of my first Big Woods tracking buck in, uh, in northern Michigan. So fingers crossed for that. <laughs> you better send me a picture. <laughs> I hope it happens. <laughs> All right, Hale. Thank you. And that's a wrap, folks. So hopefully you enjoyed that one. Uh, Before we shut this completely down, though, I will just send out my usual ask, which is if you haven't yet, if you could go over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review, it is a very helpful thing for the podcast. It means a lot. We appreciate it. So if you can do that, it takes just 30 seconds. And otherwise, just want to thank our partners who help make all of this possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today, for tuning in, hearing us BS about shed hunting, hearing us talk about Big Woods hunting. Thanks for being a part of it all. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.